you have your your tenants in real estate. So they're the ones, you know, making your paying your bill, making generating your revenue. In farming, it's your um, produce that's generating revenue. So what's your what's your crop that, that you're generating? Now there are some situations where you know a landlord will own the, the farmland and then he'll have a tenant farmer. Um, but that tenant farmer, her revenue is is based on what what she's growing, right? So it's based on you know, whatever the crop crops are, whatever the, the commodity prices are for that crop, a number of things. Let's get ready to scale. Hey guys, welcome to yet another episode of Ready to Scale. I'm your host, Jeanette Friedrich. Joining me today is Chris Raleigh. Chris is the founder and CEO of Harvest Returns. It's a fintech crowdfunding platform specific to agriculture. He's also the president of Paraplus Holdings, which focuses on real estate investments and development focused in North Texas. In addition to that, Chris has a tremendous background, having served for over 30 years in the military and ultimately retiring as a captain from the U.S. Navy. Thank you for that, Chris, very much so. Uh, it, says, it sounds like an easy sentence, but I'm sure it entails a lot. Uh, he has an MBA from Mark, an MBA in marketing from George Washington University School of Business, and his undergrad degree, like the true Texan that he is, is in poli sci from Texas A&M, and he's coming to us today from Dallas, uh, Fort Worth, you know, DFW. So, mm -hmm. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Jeanette. Yeah, absolutely. It's my pleasure. I actually moved from uh, San Antonio. Well, I actually grew up in El Paso, Texas, mm -hmm. and then moved uh, to San Antonio for most of my adulthood. And then a couple of years ago, I actually moved from San Antonio here to Boston with Blue Lake uh, just to help, uh, you know, kind of see oversee our, our, head, our new headquarters. And uh, now I'm moving off to LA. So I've kind of been making the circuit, but uh, I love the Texas roots. I, I definitely miss Texas. That's great. Yeah. I've lived in both East Coast and West Coast, and it's also, and it's great to be back in Texas. Yeah. Well, good. So I'm super curious, first of all, um, you know, it's very interesting to me that you got turned into uh, an, an agricultural enthusiast. And I'm curious, you know, kind of what was, what was your journey from, you know, being in the Navy to, you know, all of a sudden deciding, you know, that you're going to get into this. How did that happen? Yeah, it was kind of a long, windy road. Um, into this field, especially in, into farming and farming and investments. I started out, um, well, I guess I should even back further up. Like, so my father was in real estate and his father was in real estate. So it's, it's kind of in my DNA. He was a self-service storage developer back in the seventies before anybody even knew what that was. And so when I was a kid, I used to work on his, uh, warehouses, painting and sweeping and cleaning and all those sorts of things. So kind of, kind of got the real estate bug then, um, after the Navy, uh, my active duty period, I went and worked for JLL, what's now JLL. And so kind of continued in that, that real estate and started investing in real estate in my own account, like a lot of people do with single family homes and then invested in other types of real estate and worked in other, other companies and did a lot of, you know, post 9-11, I got kind of got sucked back into the Navy. Um, but during that I got a really good appreciation for not just real estate, but um, in the mechanics behind it, but investing in general. And 
one of the things in my travels, uh, did a lot of international travel with the Navy, is I, I saw that there was most people um, outside the U.S., at least in in the developing world, they don't have the same, uh, they don't take their food for granted. So, you know, we can go to a restaurant, go to a grocery store pretty much 24-7, get get whatever we want. Um, other countries are not, not as fortunate and they have to either grow what they eat or, you know, buy it at a local market. And so that sort of got me thinking a lot about farmers and farming. I don't really have a farming background. My co-founder, Austin Manis, um, he did spend his time in the summers growing up working on his family farms. But uh, we decided back in 2016 that there was kind of a mismatch between investors that might want to be in farming and didn't have the opportunity to do so because they didn't understand how to buy a farm. They didn't have the knowledge. They didn't have the, the capital, just like trying to go out and buy a you know an office building or a, a large apartment all by yourself when it's your first investment. Nobody's really going to be able to do that. So we put together this platform to... Um, be able to for investors to have access to these these offerings and these deals that are um, generally pretty small if, from the investment standpoint. And then we pull the investments together, like any sort of multifamily syndication might happen. And at the same time, uh, the more and more we got to know the agriculture industry, which is a really wide wide industry, much greater than many people understand, that there's not. Um, a lot of good funding sources unless you're doing certain types of agriculture. So if you're doing anything sort of out of the ordinary, trying to trying to raise capital, it can be very, very challenging. So we found that sort of two part problem and and we became the solution to uh, solve that problem on both the investor side and the farming side. Interesting. Yeah, <clears throat> that was actually my next question for you is, you know, what made you decide on, say, farmland instead of, you know, multifamily? Uh, what made you decide that you wanted to target, uh, you know, these partnerships with farmers and ranchers and other agriculturally based businesses? Was it kind of an epiphany or was it born? Of yeah, it was it was more of an epiphany. Um, you know, I'm from Dallas, Fort Worth, which is, as everybody knows, is a is a super uh, multifamily market, uh, has been for a long, long time. And, you know, Texas in general, great, great market for for real estate investing. And so. You know, I, I guess I've always liked to do something different, um, sort of go to my own, uh, the, you know, the beat of my own drum. And so farming, because there wasn't, when we started this platform, and uh, there wasn't really other competitors out there doing what we're doing. There were some farmland funds and some publicly traded REITs and things like that. But as far as a place to do sort of private placements in small to mid-sized farms, that didn't exist. So, um, and as, as I noted, the the farming demand is out there. there. There's just this really massive demand for outside investment in farming, and, and it's still very un, untouched. Most farms um, in the United States are do not have outside funders. They're family-owned. And even those that we work with um, to raise capital for, they're pretty much still family-owned. It's just that we bring in some outside investors to help them uh, expand their operation. Interesting. Okay. Now I'm curious, does this also include marijuana? I know that's become like a huge, you know, uh, booming interest to a lot of investors. Um, so is that part of the mix as well? No, we haven't done uh, marijuana per se, because just, you know, there's a lot of regulations still, even though in many states it's it's open and free, the banking regulations 
are not very favorable. A lot of the publicly traded marijuana companies are all based in Canada. So we haven't, we have uh, kind of dabbled in hemp and CBD, which is, you know, it's, it's a cannabis, but, but it's there, the legalities of, uh, around it are much different. Hmm. Interesting. Now, um, you know, I took a look at your website, of course, because I was snooping around and preparing for our interview today. And, you know, it's very interesting to me, uh, the idea of essentially, it looks like farmers are becoming fund managers. So, you know, I want to kind of tear this whole thing apart mm -hmm. and understand mm -hmm. it better. So my first question is, you know, what is, how are these deals structured? What would be an example mm -hmm. of like an average deal? Yeah. So what happens generally is, is a, a farmer uh, or an agribusiness um, and many farmers, they're not just producing something that, you know, they own sort of vertically integrated where they're, they own maybe the distribution piece, the processing piece or the sales side of things. Um, they need to raise capital. Uh, and so they come to us. So either to start something new, you know, new a new sort of farming company or uh, expand what they've got. And um, they come to us and, and sometimes they have terms that are readily available. They're like, hey, this is this is what we're offering. You know, whether it's a, a debt or equity and we do we do debt investments um which essentially we lend uh equivalent would be kind of a hard money lender that, that we bring in investors on we also do just pure equity and then we do done convertible debt for kind of the early stage agribusinesses where it's hard to put a valuation on them so we'll help them sort of think about what they want to do and those the structure is essentially i've got a pool of investors they come in they invest anywhere between say 10,000 and you know, six digits. And we, we pull those investments together into a special purpose vehicle, essentially an LLC. And then we invest in the farm or ranch and come on to their um, operation as a single investor. So we're managing um, the, the pool of investors. We're managing, we're taking care of the K1s and the reporting and all those sorts of things. And the farmer for the most part is out there just doing what they do and producing you know, farming and producing food. And of course they need to, you know, provide updates and financial updates and, and K1s and things like that to us that, that we can pass on to our investors. But um, for the most part, it's, it's fairly hands-off on the farmer's part as, as far as the fund side goes. Um, up until re very recently, we've done, we do individual investments. So we pull just like one might put together a syndication for an individual, say apartment complex. We, we've done that. Um, recently, we launched a couple of uh, blind pool funds so that we can raise capital for, um, we have a debt fund and an equity fund. So it just a, enables to get a little bit more creative in how we deploy that capital to, to multiple different assets or, or operating companies versus uh, individual projects. Very interesting. So it's, it almost seems like a blend of VC where it's almost like people are investing actually into the operating companies mm -hmm. or, you know, whatever, you know, type of company mm -hmm. it may be, um, <clears throat> as opposed to the farmland itself. Right. Yeah. So uh, how are the, what are the general returns, you know, for these types of investors? Sure. Are they very Yeah. And, and the reason we, there's a lot of reasons we went that way, but one was, as I mentioned, there's already farmland funds out there. Um, you know, you can go out and buy a REIT that, that owns farmland. It's a great way to get exposure to that problem with some of those REITs is that they are publicly traded so that they're volatile. You know, one of the reasons you want to own farmland is because it's a non-correlated asset. Um, and when you go out and buy it as a publicly traded stock, you, you sort of lose that, that lack of correlation. Um, 
but as far as as far as um, the investments that that we do and the returns on a debt side right now, because it's uh you know we're in a higher interest rate environment, we we might get north of you know 12, 16, 18 percent on debt deals um, on the um the, the the sort of farming investments into a farming company agribusiness is probably north of 20% IRR is what we're targeting. And then, yeah, there are, we do uh, another smaller part of our business is, is almost like angel investing. Like you said, BC, where we're investing in early stage agriculture technology companies. So these are, you know, high risk uh, potential for high payoff. Uh, if they, if these companies do really, really well and um, grow quickly and, sort of help transform what's going on with agriculture. That's that's a big part. The, the type of investments we do um, are focused on what we call verticals. One is livestock, so like grass-fed, regenerative grass-finished livestock. We've done a lot of that. The second is indoor farming, so like this graphic behind me. Um, growing farms, growing food indoors uses less water, less pesticide, herbicide runoffs, those sorts of things, and uh, produces food closer to where it's consumed. So you don't have to truck lettuce from Salinas Valley, Valley, California to Boston. Um, and you, you, there's been a number of those farms, you know, popping up all over the United States. And then we do sort of specialty agriculture, things like vineyards. Uh, we've done mushroom farm. We've done orchards, hazelnut orchards. So kind of specialty things. And that final is that, that category that I mentioned with the early stage agriculture technology companies. Very cool. Very interesting. It's really neat to see this type of innovation, you know, happening within agriculture. I mean, I just haven't, you know, bothered to think about agriculture very much. And, and it's, it sounds very interesting to me. Um, now I'm curious, how are you sourcing uh, essentially capital, right? For these farmers, I assume that they don't have, you know, a huge network to go and tap into and, you know, a, a years of fundraising behind them. So how are you essentially partnering with them to help source all of these different investors and capital partners? Yeah. So that that's that's 100 true. Most of them, you know, maybe they've raised some money with friends and family, or maybe they're sitting. Agriculture, a very common situation you see, especially on the ranching side, is they might be sitting on a piece of family land that's been in the family for two, three generations, might be completely paid off, um, but they don't have any of the things that go on the land, whether that's infrastructure, fencing for raising cattle, uh, processing facilities the cattle themselves, the, those sorts of things. Um, so we have a pool of investors, uh, works like sort of a typical crowdfunding model, um, although we're doing regulation D offerings, so primarily accredited investors, some are open to non-accredited investors, but they, the, we basically pool the capital from these investors um, and that, that list of people that come to us is growing all the time that want to invest. And then we we put that money together and into the SPV and then we, we issue it, uh, act as the issuer and get into the uh, invest in these companies. Very interesting. So you're essentially being the fund manager and the poor farmer doesn't have to worry about that. Right. Um, interesting. Fun fact uh, about my own past. I was part of a cow share once back in the oh, day cool. uh, mm -hmm. when I was homeschooling my kids and getting into mm -hmm. crazy mm -hmm. stuff like raw milk and growing my own yeah and all kinds of crazy stuff. But uh, yeah, out of curiosity, how much does a cow go for nowadays? You know, it depends. Um, depends on a lot of things, but let's just say 15, 1500 bucks. Um, and I'm just throwing out that number. It, 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 for a prize bull, it could be thousands and thousands and thousands. 
Um, and it's funny because we work with all different kinds of cattle operations. We work with we're dairy operations as well, but um, embryo transfer operation where a lot of genetics are say are it, it it's very interesting. That industry is is wide. I mean, people think about the cattle raising as you drive down the road and you see you know some cows on the side of the road. Probably not so much in Boston as you do here in Texas, but <laughs> um, you know you, you you definitely see that a lot. But it's a really, really wide ranging industry and um, it we're we're excited to be part of it because there's a lot of there's a lot of changes that are going on and most of them are positive. Yeah, this definitely sounds um, much more interesting <clears throat> as we start to dig into the details mm -hmm. of all the different, I guess, verticals, essentially, mm -hmm. that agriculture can take and the different opportunities, you know, that investors can use for, um, you know, participating in this. So very cool. Um, now, I'd also like to kind of talk about the difference between agriculture versus, you know, multifamily real estate, right? Mm -hmm. Or real estate in mm -hmm. general, because that's more my wheelhouse. Uh, but before we get into that, let's get a word from our sponsor. Ready to Scale is brought to you by Blue Lake Capital, where we hunt down the best multifamily investment opportunities that we can find and invite investors to join in with us. We target Class B value-add multifamily properties across the Sun Belt. Our CEO, Ellie Perlman, invests a substantial amount of capital into every deal. This means our interests are aligned with yours. If you're an accredited investor looking to expand your portfolio and diversify sponsors, be sure to visit us at bluelake-capital.com. Blue Lake Capital, be bold, be extraordinary, and keep moving forward. Okay. All right. So Chris, tell me, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the economy today. I'm looking at challenges, you know, that we have within, you know, real estate, um, you know, the office sector has obviously taken, you know, quite the beating this year. Uh, there's pressure on multifamily and I'm just curious, you know, how similar or different agriculture is, you know, compared to uh, multifamily investing. So, you know, for example, one thing that I was thinking about is cap rates. So, you know, cap rates have a, uh, they have an impact on the valuation of real estate. And I'm curious, does this impact, you know, agriculture as well? Yeah, that's not really a term that, that is used much in agriculture. So, you know, here's, here's similar, there are a number of similarities. And, and you know, the first similarity is, is with, between agriculture and real estate is location, right? So location and land. Um you know, if you have a multifamily uh, apartment building somewhere, location is, is critical. What, you know, where, where are you going to get the tenants from? What's what's the economy supporting um, that you can you can grow your rents and have your rents and and keep keep your uh, vacancy numbers low? All those sorts of things are are important. On the the ag side, it, it comes down to you know, okay, what's your distance from whoever's going to buy your food or distribute your food? That's part of it. But also, what's your growing condition? So we're talking outdoor agriculture specifically now. Um, you know, rain, uh, climate, soil conditions. Soil, all those things are very, very important. Much more so in agriculture than they might be in uh, multifamily real estate. You, you don't. You have your your tenants in real estate, so they're the ones you know making your paying your bill, making generating your revenue. In farming, it's your um, produce that's generating revenue. So what's your, what's your crop that, that you're generating? Now, there are some situations where, you know, a landlord will own the farmland and then he'll have a tenant farmer. 
Um, but that tenant farmer, her revenue is, is based on what, what she's growing, right? So it's based on, you know, whatever the crop crops are, whatever the, the commodity prices are for that crop, a number of things. The, the types of real estate or the types of ag in ag real estate that we're doing are generally non-commodity based. So a lot of people uh, think of agriculture, they drive through the Midwest, United States, and they'll see just rows and rows of corn or soybeans. As far as the eye can see, we're generally not doing those commodity-based crops. There's other places, as I mentioned, that you can invest in that that type of farmland. We're doing more niche sorts of things, like like I said, vineyards or um, grass-fed, grass-finished beef. We just did a bison ranch not too long ago. So uh, some very unique um, crop types and in in types of food production that are are not necessarily very generic. You know, I I, I like to say. When you're doing the modeling for like a multifamily, you kind of seen one, you've seen them all. They're, the numbers are all the same. You know, what's the cap rate? What's you, you, you've got some variables like taxes and, and and things like that. But in farming, you've seen one farm, and that's pretty much one farm. They're very unique, so to to underwrite these um, can be a challenge. But fortunate, fortunately, we have a good team that's pretty experienced in doing those. Very interesting. <clears throat> now, I'm curious too from the the angle of you know, for so again, for example, in comparison, right? Um, you know, so even if we're impacted by cap rates, putting pressure on the valuations of our properties, we can still counterbalance that by putting a lot of emphasis on our NOI and our operations. And so I'm curious when you are looking at the valuations of companies that are, you know, in, in one shape or form in agribusiness, um, what can they do to counter some of the challenges that come with, say, you know, the, the overall revenue stream from their crops, you know, uh, how, how else do, do agricultural based businesses drive up the value of their businesses? Yeah. So terrific question. And, and there, there might be a similarity there. So, you know, if you have an apartment building, maybe you have like a laundry facility, or maybe you have like some other little alternative revenue streams besides just the tenants, um, some value, some, some other ways to generate revenue. Most farmers um, are going to do similar sorts of things. So, you know, the one thing they're going to try to do is increase their margins. Um, USDA has this number, I think it's called the farm share. And it, it shows that out of every dollar of foods that's sold in the United States, a farmer on, on average only takes seven to 14 cents of that. So the farmers we work with are, are trying to capture a larger percentage of that food share. And maybe that's because they're distributing directly to consumers or selling like on the web rather than through, you know, a series of wholesalers, distributors, retailers, they they can they can sell that directly online now, which is a fairly new thing in the in the food industry. Sometimes maybe they're selling it local in a farmer's market. Um, so their their margins are higher in that way. And there's other sources of revenue. Um, you know, farmers, they get creative. Maybe there's agritourism where people come. Um, if you ever lived in like Florida, they have like a or California, they have like pick your own strawberry sort of thing. So there's you know there's other these alternative sources of revenue. Um, farmers are sort of playing with carbon credits these days, or, you know, some of them are starting to get into that. So that's another revenue stream we're seeing on some, um, ranches and farms. So it's, it's, it's like anything else you want to maximize your revenue and minimize your expenses and, and, and risk. Very interesting. Um, now, what about tax benefits? That's another thing I'm curious. Sorry, I really am just loaded with questions about all this. No, it's it, these are these are great yeah. question. So on the on the tax side, there are some similarities. So you know, land you cannot depreciate, obviously, but 
improvements on the land. So uh, improvements on um, farmland might include, you know, infrastructure, processing facilities, fencing, things like that. So that's obviously, you know, passed through depreciable. There are numerous tax advantages that are just available to agriculture, primarily low taxes, um, you know, the agriculture exemptions for growing exemptions, things like that, that vary, you know, from state to state. And, and so that's another benefit of, of potentially investing in these companies. Um, you know, you can depreciate uh, equipment. To, if you look at like a, a tractor or combine, those things can be upwards of a half million dollars. So that's, you know, instead of depreciation, depreciating uh, a building, you, you're almost depreciating that kind of value in some of this farm equipment. So there's there's all sorts of um, similarities there that uh, that you can you can take advantage of when you're investing in these these farming companies. Interesting. Now, <clears throat> I'm curious also about some of the challenges. So I can say for sure that you, you know, the insurance rates, I mean, are just killing deals left and right and a lot of different markets. And I can't even imagine, um, you know, probably what it would be like for agriculturally based businesses as well. So I'm curious, what do you see in the insurance world when it comes to agriculture? Yeah, so there, it's interesting because there's a lot of distortion in agriculture based on government interest in lobbying. So some crops are very well insured. In fact, their government guarantees it's almost impossible to lose money. In fact, the government will pay them for not farming in, in some, some years. Um, other, other parts of the agriculture industry, not as much. Some crops are simply not insurable. They're just not large enough to have an insurance pool. So that can be a challenge in, in some of the specific things we work with. But but in other other uh, respects, it's very similar to real estate, where there's um, you know the ability to to insure a crop in case it um, you know it, in case there's a drought or bad bad disease or pest or whatever that year. Most farming, kind of general farming, you only have one crop a year, so that's a pretty that can be a high risk thing, which is why there's these insurance. Some of the other types of farming we do, like indoor farming, you can have. 8, 10, 12 crop cycles per year. So there's, if you, something happens, you lose one crop cycle and another, you know, six weeks, you can have more hydroponic greens or whatever. So that's, that's another risk. And then, and, and, you know, just like in real estate, the operator is, is really critical to minimizing risk. So if you have an experienced operator, you're, you're lowering your risk. So we try to, you know, bet our operators that we work with for, um, to minimize the risk wherever possible. Very interesting. So, you know, you've been doing this for several years now. Um, what would you say have been, quote, the biggest winners? Um, you know, whether it's been, a, you know, an operating company or an actual crop, um, you know, what would you say just kind of have been the, the shiny, you know, best kind of attractive um, opportunities that have, you know, yielded good results for you? Yeah, for us, it's been the, the cattle side, you know, the private private debt on the cattle side. These, these cattle farmers, especially the ones that are doing like, grass fed grass finished they're just the loans are not as readily available as one would think they are um like i said the the ag finance industry is, has very static it hasn't changed a lot in 50 60 years so when you come in and you you're offering something new there's a high demand for it and and some flexibility and underwriting standards things like that yeah the interest rates are a little bit higher than they might get at a local ag credit union but um, we're able to underwrite some things that, that may not otherwise be possible. So for us, you know, really success is, is working with some of these grass-fed producers. 
Interesting. And what would you say has been, you know, kind of one of the more painful, but well-learned, you know, valuable lessons along the way. So, so we'll go back to uh, cannabis, the hemp. Uh, we had a couple of hemp deals that just didn't do well. Mm. Um, you know, it's a commodity. Everybody was really excited when hemp was legalized and same thing with cannabis, but it's kind of a race to the bottom. And I don't, you know, I don't know a, a lot about the marijuana legal cannabis industry, but from what I've seen, it hasn't been handled well by the states, some states more than others, California, the cartels on the growing, you know, the cartels came and took took over all the legal growing. Um, so it's mostly illegal now, uh, or it's mostly underground. And the state of California and some other states didn't do really a good job when they started to regulate this. So I, I, I'd stay away. If I was an investor interested in cannabis, I just wouldn't do it. Interesting. That's um, really good information for people to know and hear. Um, I hadn't even actually thought about the component of, you know, having to come up against the cartel and uh, really the danger that could even be associated with any of that, you know, let alone trying to deal with the regulations and especially since it varies on a state by state basis. Um, yeah, great insight. All right. Well, Chris, this has been very interesting to me. Um, before we jump into what I call the lightning round questions, is there any last tidbit of information that you'd like the listeners to know about all of this? No, just uh, you, we know this is a new asset class for a lot of people. Um, we don't want people to take it for granted because the more you learn about agriculture and food and how it's produced and, and who produces it, the more interesting and compelling it is. So we, we like to have these conversations and educate people. It's very cool. I think it's uh, interesting. You got my attention and I'll be I'll be tracking on you and, and seeing how things go. Uh, well, very cool. All right. So now let's go ahead and jump into what I call the lightning round questions. These are five questions that I ask all the guests on the show. So are you ready to go? Let's go. All right. So my first question for you is what do you actually do for a hobby when you're not, you know, uh, running around buying up cattle farms and ranches. Sure. Yeah, you know, so I like to spend a lot of time outdoors. Um, if I can do that on the water, that's generally a good thing. So I'll scuba dive, sail, paddleboard, swim, pretty much anything that involves water. I, I like. Makes sense with that Navy background. I would hope so. <laughs> okay. And what is something um, interesting about you that most people don't know? Mm -hmm. Let's see. In 2013, I was involved with rescuing American citizens out of South Sudan when there was a civil war there. That was interesting. Wow, that is very interesting. Yeah, yeah that's a story to yeah, share. That was, like, that was 10 years ago this month. So that was, I don't know why I thought about that, but yeah. Wow, very interesting. Okay. Um, now, what about as far as a book, uh, you know, what book would you recommend, if, especially maybe even particular towards this or yeah. investing in general, what would you recommend people should check out? You know, there's, there's a couple of books about agriculture, investing, farmland, investing. They're probably fairly dated, but there's a book called Defending Beef. Um, and oh, gosh, I'm going to butcher the author's name if I try to remember who her name, but it's called Defending Beef and it's really good. It, it dismisses a lot of, um, a lot of misconceptions about beef and its role in the environment and its nutritional role. And if, if you have any hesitation whatsoever about eating beef or, or supporting beef raisers, you should read this book. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty great. Interesting. Okay. 
Um, all right. Now, one of the other things that we, you know, like to try to always remind people, you know, we don't really need to remind them per se, but, you know, I mean, we understand that investments are for generating income, you know, money. Yeah, that's great. But, you know, it's really what you do with that, you know, that, that matters. And so, you know, one of our goals is, is to encourage people to build extraordinary lives and, you know, to use the money that they make to do that and to support that. So what would be your advice for someone that is trying to be focused on building an extraordinary life for themselves? I, that's a, a wonderful question. Um, and maybe there's different parts to it, but I'd say that one is that work-life balance, you know, make sure you're not just all working, but if you, when you are working, do something you're passionate about. And if you're passionate about what you're doing, you're going to you know, you're going to be successful in it, no matter what that, that looks like. Great advice. Yeah. Excellent. All right. And then last but not least, Chris, if people want to get in touch with you, if they want to learn more about the investments, if they just have a bunch more questions like I did, uh, how can they find you? Yeah. Easiest way is to go to harvestreturns.com, our website, but of course we're on social media. We're on X and Facebook and LinkedIn and all those things. All right. Very good. And I'm proud of you for embracing the the term X. I'm still calling it Twitter because I'm old fashioned right. and stuck in my ways. But yeah. All right. Well, very good. Well, thank you so much, Chris. I really appreciated this. It was really enlightening, very interesting to me. And for those of you that joined us today, I hope you also found this to be very interesting and enlightening. Um, you know, uh, we appreciate you listening. We'd love to know your thoughts about what you'd like to hear more of. So please don't forget to like, rate, and review the show. And in the meantime, be bold, be strong, and keep moving forward. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.